Our main speaker tonight gets to share their experience, strength, and hope, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. And the Maxine uh, will share till uh, quarter after, and then she's going to take 10 minutes of questions, which is a format that a lot of people enjoy. So uh, she's as hard to get out of her cave as Bin Laden, but I finally got her to come over to hell. And it is with special pleasure that I introduce our speaker, Maxine. Hi, everybody. I'm Maxine, a compulsive overeater. Hi, Very grateful and feeling very fortunate and lucky to have found these rooms. Uh, I came into Overeaters Anonymous in September of 1961, uh, out of control, uh, 40 years ago. I can hardly believe it, considering I'm only 39. <laughs> <laughs> and the lady who's sitting in the front row there was, uh, was leading the meeting that night uh, at um, Temple Isaiah on Pico Boulevard. Uh, I did not come in at my top weight. My top weight was 192. Uh, I started my abstinence uh, in uh, April of 1964, and since that time I have had imperfect back-to-back abstinence. Um, I came into OA out of control. Uh, The year before I came into this program, very much like Pia was talking about, um, I uh, was in bed threatening to abort my second child. My father died. I could not go to his funeral because I was uh, on bed rest. And my grandmother died who raised me, and I gave birth to my second daughter. And in that whole year, I never once shed a tear because when people would ask me how I was, I was always fine. And you know what fine stands for. It's, you know, fearful, insecure. I can't even remember. <laughs> Neurotic. Well, everybody knows, so I don't have to tell you. <laughs> Anyhow, um, soon after my second daughter was born, I started to cry, and I I couldn't stop crying. I was crying day and night and ended up uh, in a psychiatrist's couch for about six or eight weeks. And uh, during the time I was having this uh, so-called nervous breakdown, uh, I was really unable to eat because at that time I couldn't figure out how to eat and cry at the same time. But as I started to get better emotionally, guess what happened? All these cravings and all the compulsions returned, and so I started to eat. Um, a little bit about my eating history, uh, which I don't like to spend a lot of time on because you've all done it, more or less than I have, probably most of you more because I stopped in 1964. But um, I, was, I started compulsive overeating when I was three. Uh, I knew the time and the date and when it happened. Um, my, I had curly hair as a child, and my grandmother took care of me. My grandmother did everything quickly uh, and didn't like to fuss, but in those days we had Shirley Temple curls. And she had to brush my hair and curl my hair every morning, and she said to me one day, Cookie, that's my nickname, very apropos, uh, if you let me take you downtown and have your hair cut, I'll buy you ice cream. Well, what a deal. So I went downtown. I ended up with a Buster Brown haircut, you know, short, straight, bangs. Uh, when I got home and my mother saw my hair, she was furious at my grandmother but couldn't get angry at her because she was my caregiver. So she got angry at me and spanked me and put me in my crib. And I can still see myself standing there between the bars, you know, like in prison. <laughs> uh, and uh, soon after that, my grandmother came in and said, Honey, here's some cookies that will make you feel better. And it did. And so I learned at a very early age what made me feel better. And so from the time I was three, uh, I was a compulsive overeater, and I was on my first diet when I was 10. 
uh, those days they didn't have diet doctors as yet. And so my mother took me to the children's hospital and they put me on this diet. Uh, and the, we didn't have uh, Pam in those days and spray. And uh, we, I wasn't allowed to have any fat. So my mother used to make me scrambled eggs in an iron pan and I can still taste it. I mean, that's why I don't like eggs today because I can still taste that iron taste. And so at age 10, I weighed 100 pounds and I lost 12 pounds during that diet and I went down to 88 pounds. And from that time on until I came into these rooms, I yo-yoed. And at the very end, I just yo-yoed because I didn't, I just got tired. I just got tired. I just couldn't yo-yo anymore. I tried everything that was available up until 1961. Um, to lose weight. And I am a very, very successful dieter. But dieting always meant to me, I, I stayed on the diet until I got to whatever weight I wanted to get to, and then that meant that I could eat anything I wanted to and still maintain that weight. Duh. But it never occurred to me that uh, that, that wouldn't happen. So I just kept dieting and losing, and, you know, I'd lose 20 and gain 30. You know, it, it, that's what happens when you yo-yo like that. You get interest on your weight you lose. You always, you know, it's always more at the end. It's never the same. It's 20, 30, you know, 30, 40. And so at the end, it was 65 pounds for me. It, it went, went from 192, 192 back down to about 125, 120. So for me, it was just always that. And I tried all the diets. You know, nothing has changed in dieting, as all of you probably know. The only thing is that now things are much more expensive and a little more complicated. But the only thing that it, it, it's mathematical. You just have to eat less than your body needs, and you lose weight. And if you eat more than your body needs, you gain weight. And so for me, I was always looking for the silver bullet. My favorite diet in the whole world was eat all you want and lose weight. <laughs> now they have a new twist on it. Take this pill before you go to bed, and while you lose weight while you sleep, that's even better. What a con. What a con. Anyhow, so that's what I did, and that was just part of the the physical part of my disease. The emotional part of my disease was that I was always miserable, never happy, uh, very insecure, very needy, very dependent, very codependent. Uh, and um, I came from a background uh, that, that supported that. My mother is a compulsive overeater uh, and was a, gamb- and a, ga- and a compulsive gambler, and my father was kind of like the invisible man. So uh, we don't end up in these rooms because we come from loving, nurturing parents. So that was just some of my background, and I'm not blaming them for that. When I said I'm a lucky compulsive overeater because I don't know where I would be today without these rooms. I don't know what would have happened in 1961. I didn't agree to bring somebody else to my first OA meeting. I found out about OA because my mother found a little blurb in one of the local papers that they were starting this new weight reducing group and um, I didn't have enough money to go to another diet doctor so um, the secretary called me and told me the meeting was in at night and the other thing was that I was also very fearful uh, and I said well I'm sorry I can't make this meeting because I don't drive at night but she called me a couple weeks later and said there's a young woman who needs to come to the meeting she's 300 pounds and she doesn't have a car could you pick her up I said sure so, some, so my codependency, my need to help somebody else, putting somebody else's needs before myself brought me to these rooms, and I'm grateful. I'm really very, very grateful. So when I came into these rooms, um, 
I didn't hear a lot except everybody was very loving. I saw Roseanne at 110 pounds, very thin and very up and very on the ball, uh, uh, telling about how wonderful this group was. And I kept coming back, and it was wonderful. And we didn't have something called abstinence in the early days. We just dieted. And there were the 12 steps with God bless your heart, Roseanne. She had changed the steps slightly. She had taken God out of most of the steps, which was just fine with me because I didn't have a God. So we did, I won't bother you with what you can go to Roseanne and she'll tell you all the, the devised version that she gave it. But it was fine for me because I really never followed directions. My, my best thing in life was I want to do the least amount of work to get the most results. And I didn't read in the big book where it says, um, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our steps. I looked at the steps, and this is how I took the steps for the first two and a half years I was in the program. I took the first part of step one, the last part of step 12, and a little bit in between. Now, that's what I call taking the steps cafeteria style. It didn't work. I did lose weight. I did get down almost to my normal weight, but then I had to move to the valley because we were moving. And for me to move from West L.A. to the valley was like trekking across the United States. And at that time, we only had two, two groups, right, Roseanne? There was a group here in, L- in L.A., and there was a group in the San Fernando Valley. We did not – well, there were two groups in the San Fernando Valley, as I remember. Um, and we didn't have, you know, a, a meeting or ten meetings every day. We had two meetings a week if we were lucky. And um, I managed to keep my weight off, but this is how I did it. I dieted Monday through Friday and then binged on Saturday and Sunday and then started on Monday and Friday again. Monday through Friday. Well, that won't work. (laughs) And so what I was doing in OA is what I had done outside of OA. I was cheating. I was doing the least amount of work, and I had no emotional and spiritual recovery. I had physical recovery. But as a lot of you know in this room, you know, thin doesn't necessarily mean well. So for me, uh, in 1964, I decided I would finally get a sponsor. I'm a very slow learner. And so in 1964, I met a woman who was also an an AA and who was also very, very high on the steps. She said, Maxine, if you want what she called at that time permanent recovery, and and she said, if you want to have permanent sobriety, that was those were her terminology, you need to work the steps. Because for me, and she said, OA is just a cheap diet club without the steps. And that's the truth. And so I, being a good little girl, because that's how I was raised, to be a good little girl, um, I, wanted to be, I wanted what she had. And so in 1964, in April, I started my uh, abstinence at that time. And that time, it was gratiate abstinence. For those of you who know about it, I won't have to explain. And those of you who don't know about it, you don't need to. And so... <laughs> And so um, I started my abstinence in April of 1964, and I started working the steps. And I went down to a, a group of people down in, um, I can't call it East L.A., I guess it's mid-Wilshire, uh, uh, 3rd and Alvarado, the Old Palms Hotel, an old alcoholic hotel, where uh, a man by the name of Bob Rack, who is now since deceased, uh, had a group called APOR. And, it is, and those uh, letters, A-P-O-A-R, stood for Applied Principles of Addicted Recovery or alcoholic recovery at that time, and he believed that the steps written in the big book were not tough enough for the real tough alcoholic. So he had written, re, he had written a book that made it 
much more difficult and much more thorough in his his um, frame of mind. And one thing about that group, you could sit in the room and listen, but you could not participate in that group until he had give, written a four-step and given it away. And so for about three months, a whole group of us from the Valley drove down every single night, uh, Wednesday night, down to um, this hotel, and we sat in this, de- this dark, kind of smoky, coughing room and listened to a man expound on the steps and I started working the steps in 1964. Um, the first step, I was told, and I do believe, is this explains my disease. I am powerless over food, and my life really sucked. And so I needed to do some. That's, I, do, I just read this week something that was very interesting, and it really goes along with the 12 steps. It says, in order to bring about change, you need three things. You need to be aware. You need to have the desire. And you need discipline. Now, isn't that the program? The first step says, I am aware I am a compulsive overeater and my life is unmanageable. Well, that's my problem. What am I going to do about it? I really want a solution. I have a desire to get well. So the second step is a solution. I needed to come to believe that there was a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity. If I could have done it myself, I wouldn't need to be in these rooms. If I could have done it myself, I would be thin. So I knew that I couldn't do it by myself. And the big book explains it to me. It explains that I have an obsession of the mind. And if you look up the word obsession in the dictionary, you will find that it is something that is greater than the mind. So how can I expect to solve my disease where the disease lays or lies? whatever and so I can't do that I mean it's impossible to cure something where the disease is so I need something other and greater than my disease and so that for me is a higher power now I didn't have a higher power when I came to this uh, to OA but my sponsor explained to me that I only had to come to believe and she said do you believe that I have a higher power and I said yes she said then you can use my higher power and that meant I could use her and I had to, I had faith in her because I believed that she had um, emotional and spiritual recovery as well as physical recovery uh, she was also the person who brought the, the infamous gray sheet to Overeaters Anonymous and I won't bore you with that so for me I said okay I can come to believe and that started my pilgrimage and she says well if you believe that then the next step it comes right in, right in order that I have to turn my will and my life over to the care of that power. Now, I didn't know how to do that, and I didn't even understand that. And sometimes today I don't understand what turning my will and my life means over to God. But I knew at that time she explained it very simply. The third step just means you proceed with, to the fourth step. Now, the first three steps of this program are all mental steps. It doesn't require us really to do anything in action. It requires me to admit. It requires me to believe. It requires me to decide and make a decision. Now, a decision is not a decision unless it's immediately followed by action. If it isn't followed by action, then it's a thought. Now, there's two birds sitting on a, three birds sitting on a wire, and two birds think about flying away. How many birds are left on the wire? Three, because they only thought about flying away. They didn't fly away. So for me, I had that decision then made, made, um, meant that I had to take action. And the, the first 
the next uh, nine steps are the action steps that are necessary to bring about recovery for me and I think for everybody else in this program who's recovered. So 3 through 12 are the action steps. And so for me, I should say 4 through 12. So fourth step meant that I had to get down to business and write an inventory. Now, I had tried to write an inventory several times before 1964. One of them was going to be this perfect. I had to typewrite it. It had to be grammatically correct and perfectly written. That fizzled. I never got past the first page. And so this was written very simply. It was written in the format of the big book, the, the three columns. And it took me about eight months to write this thing. Um, because the APOR um, format is much more extensive and it has lots and lots and lots more to write, to write about. I carried my inventory around with me wherever I went. I had a lot of ego tied up in this inventory. And the reason was because I was afraid someone might, I might lose it, I might leave it somewhere, someone might discover it in my home, and then they would have the basis for the great American novel. <laughs> so I was really, I had a lot of, a lot of trepidations about that. And I was really very fearful about giving this away. I was so fearful that I did not even use my OA sponsor to give my, my first inventory away to. I found someone in APOR, an A sponsor, to give my, my inventory away to. Because I didn't think that after I had told this one person my horrendous inventory that I could face them at a meeting. But that was not the truth. When I gave my inventory away to this to this AA member, and he came back and shared with me some of his stuff, my stuff was child play. My biggest thing in my whole inventory is that I had premarital sex. Whoa! <laughs> but this was 1964, and I come from a different generation than most of you people, or, except maybe some people in the first row here. <laughs> But that was a big deal, and for me in 1964, now it's not, people don't even blink. So, but for me, that was a big deal, and it was the first, driving home that, that day, I will never forget it, I felt like someone had lifted a 20-pound bag of potatoes off of my back. I felt so great. I felt so relieved. And truthfully, it was the first time in my life I had ever done something 100%. I hadn't cheated. I hadn't fudged, you'll pardon the expression. I hadn't, I hadn't skipped anything. I had been thoroughly honest. Now, to give you an idea of how honest I had been before this, I guess I skipped a little of my former history. I was not only a compulsive overeater, but I was also a compulsive shoplifter. And I was also a cheater. I almost got expelled from UCLA because I cheated on a, um, on a freshman exam. Now, I was so smart in those days that I managed to cheat from someone who knew less than I did. <laughs> and, of course, I had the same dumb questions he had. Wrong. And so we were called down to the dean's office, and we were given one warning, and I was told that if I ever got che caught cheating again, I would be expelled. Um, and I didn't cheat there again. But it didn't, keep, it didn't keep me from shoplifting. And I shoplifted almost every day of my life before I came to this program. Um, sometimes big things, sometimes small things. Uh, sometimes, and I always had a rationale. If I wanted to go in and buy a blouse and I found a blouse, um, I couldn't decide if I wanted the green one or the red one. So my rationale was, I'll buy the green one and I'll steal the red one because then the money they make up on the green one, I really, they really didn't lose any money. Right? Very rational. So that's what I did a lot. And I really wanted to get caught. Because I thought if I once got caught, 
I would stop. Fortunately, I never got caught. But as soon as I gave my inventory away, and as soon as I admitted that I had done all that stealing, I didn't have to steal anymore. Um, I, I can't tell you that I haven't thought about it, because sometimes that old thing, that old uh, reptilian brain clicks in, and I'll think, I don't have to do that anymore. It's not necessary. And it wasn't because I didn't have the money. It was because I didn't think I was worth it. I didn't think I was worth paying for two blouses rather than one blouse. And that was my self-esteem. I didn't have any when I came here. had no self-esteem. I didn't think I was worth anything. I was the last person on the, on the totem pole. I was invisible. Your needs always came before my needs. I didn't matter. I was a people pleaser. I only wanted to do what you wanted to do because then you would like me. That's, that's the kind of person I was when I came here. So for me, not only did I not have to compulsively overeat again, but I didn't have to steal again. And the two of them kind of went together because Monday morning was always the day I was going to start the new diet and this week I wasn't going to steal. And by the next day or maybe by that evening, I had broken one or two of those vows. So when I did the fourth step and I gave my fifth step away, I was so relieved. But I lied because I really had a few I really liked. I loved gossip. I just loved gossip. And I said, yeah, I, I, I'm really ready to give that one away. You know, like that. And I, um, I said yes, and I, got, I did the seven-step prayer where I asked God to remove all my defects of character. And uh, he did. He removed compulsive overeating and shoplifting. But there was many more. See, my first inventory had to do with all that big stuff, all the big um, uh, stuff that was really bothering me. And you've heard the analogy before about this program is, you know, inventories are like peeling the onion. You know, it's one layer at a time. I could never have dealt with the things that I've dealt with over the last 40 years that, and in 1964, but it killed me. I didn't have, I didn't have the consciousness. I didn't have the emotional stability. I didn't have the spiritual connection to deal with what I've had to deal with in the last 40 years. It was impossible. So that's why we have a very gentle God. It's just a gentle peeling away. And that's why they say more will be revealed. Believe me, more will be revealed. So for me, I went to the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh step. And then the eighth step said, are you ready to have all your defects of character removed? And I said, I mean, excuse me, uh, are you willing to make amends to all people you have harmed? And I said, yes. And I really didn't think I had harmed many people. But I had a lot, and I hadn't really because I was such a weenie. Uh, um, I had a lot of financial amends to make. Now, those were really scary to me. I didn't know one person in 1964 who had made a financial amend. And so um, I asked my sponsor, and she hadn't made any financial amends. And I was really scared, and she said, well, are you willing to go to any lengths? And I said, yes. So I decided that my first financial amend would be made to the Broadway department store on Wilshire Boulevard, which is no longer there, by the way, probably because of a lot of customers like me. But uh, I was very dramatic about it. I said to my husband, Murray, you may get a phone call. You may have to come post bail. I mean, I didn't know. I didn't know if if you went back to a store and said you had stolen from them, that they didn't, you know, do this and call the cops. I didn't know that. And no one had told me that uh, that was not possible. So I had called, they had, I had been told to call the manager of the store, to make an appointment, 
and to only see that person. So driving over the hill, over the 405 uh, to, the, to Wilshire, my heart was just pounding in my, in my chest. I was so scared. I get there. I asked for the manager. She had been called away. I was ready to go home. God, you didn't mean for me to make this amend. So no, I said no. So I said, well, who could I do? Is there a, a manager of a department? And finally they found somebody, I don't know, some manager. And I gave her my whole story about I was in a 12-step program and I was trying to turn my life around and I had lost all this weight and da 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 She didn't really need to know, but I wanted her to be sure she understood. And they didn't know what to do with me. First of all, they didn't want to take my money. And I said, you have to take my money. Well, they had never had anybody up to that time who had ever come and made a personal amend. They had people who had sent checks in the mail anonymously. They had people who had left merchandise outside the door. <laughs> but they hadn't had anybody who had come into the store. So they, when I, they finally agreed to take my money, then they took me kind of like from department to department to kind of show me off. <laughs> and... It was, it was, I was like in Zululand. I didn't know what to do with myself because I had never had that experience. But again, on the way home, it was like, I, I can't even explain it. It was like something, well, for those of you who've done it, I don't have to explain it. And for those of you who haven't done it, there's no explanation. You just have to do it. That's why this program is, the action is so important in this program. If I could have done the things that this program suggested or actually demanded that I do to recover, I would have done it a long time ago. But it's just like everything else. In order for me to change, I needed to be aware. I had to want it. I had to be willing to go to any lengths. And then the discipline is action. Discipline isn't, I'll think about it. Discipline is, well, I'll make a New Year's resolution, which I made every year and broke before, you know, January 4th. But it's doing it. And what we need, to, what I needed to do it is I needed a sponsor. I also needed the fellowship. I needed people to say, yes, you, you, it's scary, but um, I'm here to support you while you do this. And, and, and over the years, one of the, the most um, helpful things I've been able to do in this program is to help people who are compulsive shoplifters because we're, there are a lot of us. I see a lot of shaking heads. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of us. It's part of our disease for a lot of us along with other, other things. So for me, that was so important. And so there was a lot of places I couldn't make amends to because they were no longer in business and were gone. And so my, my, my daily amends, my, my amends now, is that I, I give to charities all the time, anonymously, because that's part of the way of my living amends. The 10th, 11, the 12 steps are really very interesting because that, to me, is, is for me, is the foundation of, of, of maintenance. And that has been the foundation for the last uh, almost 38 years for me is maintaining. Uh, it took me a long time to realize that there was, uh, on page 86 of the big book, it said, you know, on, uh, at night we take, uh, we take it an inventory. I only used to write 10 steps when they used to get like, oh, that no good son of a, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, those are the kind of 10 steps I usually wrote when things were so bad that I couldn't stand it any longer. But then I realized somewhere into the program that it said in the morning we do this and in the evening we do that. And every night I used to go through those questions every single night and go through those, those questions. And finally after, I don't know, 10 years of doing that, I realized that I could kind of compress that into what did I do today that I feel good about? And what did I do today that I could have done better? I used to say what, could I have done, what did I do today that I don't feel good about? 
And what happens was most of the times that I didn't feel good about, the things that I had done that I didn't feel good about, had to do with amends. I was really, you know, with the people. And so that's, that has been really my salvation. And a 10-step keeps me current. I don't have to write those long, lengthy 10-steps most of the time. Uh, I've done many, many inventories. Thank you. Um, probably 10 on my mother, if not 20. Uh, and uh, my mother, God bless her, is 94 and is still around. And uh, has been a, a great, great... Uh, teacher for me. My One of my spiritual teachers once told me that troublesome people in your life are your teachers. And they teach you because they push you to learn what you need to learn. And so I'm grateful for that. Uh, and the 11th step has been my spiritual pilgrimage. I have been on my pilgrimage for my spiritual life uh, since 1964. And I've gone many places and done many things. And one of the things I, I did in uh, 1975 after being in the program for about 11 years was leave the fellowship because my, one of my spiritual teachers told me that I needed to leave because I needed to learn humility. Because in 1975, I thought I was it, Miss OA, and I wanted to, you, you all know what that is. I don't have to tell you what it is. And so for nine years, I was gone from the fellowship, but not from the program. Most of us don't understand the difference. The fellowship is not the program. The fellowship is here to support us while we work the steps. The steps are so important. And so those nine years I was gone and in a spiritual instruction, I worked this program. And when I came back in 1985 or 1980, yeah, January of 1985, only, and I didn't think I was coming back, but in 1984 my, my daughter almost died of toxic shock. And uh, when she was uh, very seriously ill, I called some of my friends in OA that, um, I, that were still in the program, and I asked them to pray for, for Robin and myself. And they did that whole week. I got calls from all the people from my old home group. And I was so touched by those prayers and support that the next week I decided to go back to my old home group and thank those people for, for their love and support. And when I walked back to, the, those, to that room in 1985, I knew God had brought me back to the program. So I'm very grateful he brought me back to the fellowship, and I knew there was more for me to learn. And so my, the 12th step of this program is my gift. I get this gift from working these steps. I get the gift of recovery. I get the gift of continuing to grow emotionally and spiritually. I get the gift of helping another compulsive overeater when no, not, not a normal person can do that. I get to share my, my grief, my hardship, my love, my happiness with people in these rooms. They get to share that with me. Um, and I, I, um, I did some 12-step uh, workshops some time back. And one of the little exercises they had uh, when we wrote inventory, they said, if you die today, what do you think um, would uh, be on your tombstone? And the next question was, if you die today, what would you like to have on your tombstone? The difference. And so I thought about it, and I thought, oh, it was an optional question. You don't have to answer it. And it's just like, you know, don't think about pink elephants. That's all I could think about for that whole next week. So I thought, well, if I died today, they would say Maxine, a loving mother, daughter, wife. Um, what would I like to have on my, my tombstone? And I, would like, and I thought, uh, Maxine, she made a difference in other people's lives. And that's what this program has given me. Thank you all for being here, and thank you for letting me share. Okay. Okay. Are there any questions? Gosh. Oh, yes. Thank you for your share. 
I'd like to hear your experience with two characters you guys have taken with fear of people and living life in fantasy. I deal with those two things. I struggle with those two things consistently. How I deal with fear of people and living in fantasy? Well, living in fantasy is not... For me, living in fantasy was dreaming about stuff and never taking any action to make it happen. You know, faith without works is dead. And so then it's back to action. Uh, I don't know... That's, that's only my, been my experience. Fear of people, what I found in the program, for me, is that I have to do what I fear. And if I was afraid of people, I guess I would just have to ask for people's help in... In introducing myself or learning how to be a uh, how to be a friend. By the way, I had no friends when I came to this program. None, zero, zilch. And I, I learned in this program how to be a friend. And all I have to do is ask. Ask people how to help you to do that. Because I don't know what specifically you need, but all I know is that there's help here from anybody else. Had fear of people in the room. There you go. Ask these people. All you have to do is ask for help. See, my problem was I never wanted to ask because I might appear foolish. So rather than appear foolish, I was stupid and didn't ask. Somebody else? I saw hands over here. Did your, did your questions get answered? Yes. <laughs> Um, my amends were getting caught. I mean, my men were getting caught. I got, I, I, I got the wrath of the dean. I got the threat of being a, a, a expulsion, and that, that I didn't have to do that anymore. And I, and I didn't, um, I didn't get a passing grade in the course. <laughs> that, you know, that was, that was, I had to take the course over. So that was, uh, yeah. Cheating was. Uh, I never believed I was good enough. Cheating for me came from the fact that I never felt I, I was smart enough, good enough pretty enough, whatever enough. I was never enough. So in order to get what I needed, I had to, I thought you were better. You knew better, you were prettier, you were smarter, you were whatever, and so that I depended on you instead of myself because I never believed I had any, anything inside of me that was worthwhile. So the basis of my cheating gets back again to that low self-esteem. It came from my mother's, my mother's message to me was, you didn't do it right. Yes. My amends to my mother? I didn't make amends to my mother. I didn't have to. My, uh, I, when I ever try to speak to my mother about anything that went on early on in my childhood, my mother uh, rationalizes what happened. Even today, as an adult, um, I've, I've come to say to her, talk about this thing about the haircut. She'll say to me, you, should have, you shouldn't have let Grandma do that. I said, well, Mom, I was three years old. She says, I know, but you shouldn't have let Grandma do, I, I do that. Is that rational? I mean, there's no responsibility, so there's no, there's no things. Um, the difference between, with my mother now is that I relate to my mother as an adult. I don't relate to her as a 10-year-old child. That's taken a long time, and I'm still working on it. Yes. Yes. No, I let go. Of, I let go of the food. I let go of the food. 
Oh yeah, at the beginning. Yes, yes. It, The question is, um, uh, I was not, I wasn't, I hadn't let go of the food in the early years. And what was it that made me let go of the food? What made me let go of the, the food? Let, <laughs> my tongue won't work. What made me let go of the food was a very strong desire to please my sponsor. <laughs> and she was tough. And you know what? My first sponsor was just like my mother. She was a strong, tough taskmaster, and she said, this is what you do. She said, don't think about it. This is what you do. Here's the, here's the diet. Here's the abstinence sheet. Call me tomorrow and tell me what you're eating for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. To this day, I still write my food down every day. I still do that. It's a discipline. I do it just like, you know, brushing my teeth in the morning. And I had never done that before. So I made a commitment. I made a decision, and I did it. I took the action because I wanted to please her. It may not have been the best reason to do it, but it worked. Yes? Can you talk about your abstinence a little? Uh, what, is it, what was it or how did you know it? Well, they want to know what my abstinence Everybody wants to know what my abstinence <laughs> I have had more abstinence in OA than anybody <laughs> else I know. Um, my abstinence, um, or you want to know my food plan. Mm, well, I guess, yes. Um, That's safe. And how it has changed. Oh, right. But see, there's a difference between abstinence and food plan. Abstinence is, or the food plan is the tool by which I abstain. Um, at the beginning, I had 14 years of um, gray sheet abstinence, um, which worked for a long time. Um, and then I realized I was abstaining uh, out of the fear of food. And I made a decision that I would try other foods. Uh, and uh, if they didn't work, they didn't work, and if they did, they did. And so I had the courage to do that, and they did work. Uh, for about uh, 11 years, I was a, a vegan. Uh, for those of you who know what that is, that's a, um, a um, maturity moment. A vegetarian that doesn't eat animal products, uh, any kind of uh, cheese or eggs or things like uh, dairy products. And I did that for uh, that length of time. And then I've done a lot. I've just done a lot of other things. Um, in my food plan. But my abstinence is that I abstain from compulsive overeating. That's what I do. And my, ab and, and my abstinence, has, as I said, has not been perfect because I, I really don't believe for me that there is a perfect abstinence. I mean, I may, you know, eat, I may eat a little bit too much of the meal. I may have a food in my food plan that is perfectly good for a couple of years, and then all of a sudden it looms greatly on the horizon. My last big give up was I had to give up rice cakes. Now, though I'm, I'm compulsive as hell about rice cakes, the worst, you know, the worst things to be compulsive about. But they, I ate them for many, many years, and I can't eat them anymore. Yes. Right. There's a couple of things that have happened to you and what the 12 steps have done or how you've made to get through them now that always has helped you. I think that um, for me, my, my whole evolution of recovery has been uh, just a slow, a slow 
thing. Um, I've worked the 12 steps. I've, I've gone other places and done other things. I've done, you know, gone to other workshops. I've, I've had therapy. I've, I've done lots and lots of things. Um, and it's, as, as I've needed to do them, I've always been open. Uh, to everything that's possible for my for my recovery, I don't I don't think I never wanted to be so closed-minded that I only saw this much. So if there was something that I thought would help my re- emotional spiritual recovery, I, I've I've done that. Like I said, I was in a spiritual instruction for uh, uh, 20 years, and and uh, I'm no longer in that instruction anymore. But I gleaned a tremendous amount out of it, and then moved on to some. I found myself just shifting over. So it's just been what. So, so much. We are all such individuals. I am an individual. My story is so different than your story. So I couldn't possibly, um, you know, my my recovery couldn't possibly be the same as yours. But I've just I've just used everything that has come my way that, and I've tried it all. I've just tried it all. Some of it's worked, and some of it hasn't worked. But there's been a lot of upheaval. I mean, my daughter's illness was a tremendous upheaval for me. Um, just recently, we, my mother and I didn't speak for a good many years. Uh, we've had several times when we've had um, breaks in our relationship. And about four years ago now, I've lost kind of track of time, uh, I was reading a piece in, of spiritual literature, and it said, if you die today, would you have any regrets? And I thought, no. Thank God I don't have any regrets. And then it came to me. I would really regret not making the effort to reconnect with my mother, who was at that time 90 years old. And so I prayed and prayed and prayed, and was very fearful because my mother can be very vindictive and very vicious. And so I decided that I would make the attempt because I did not want to have that, that regret. of not Because my mother doesn't have the tools of this program. And so I made the attempt... And she was so glad to hear from me, I almost fell over. She said, I've been waiting for your phone call. Mother, the phone works the other way. Uh, but no. But that's, that was because this program gave me the writing skills to, to write about it, to pray about it, to talk about it, to know that even if it didn't work out, that was okay. See, I found out that I'm okay doing what I do on a daily basis. I don't have to be more than I am. This program has taught me that before I got here, I thought I had to be more than I am to be acceptable, to be a human on this, on this planet. And now I'm okay with all my foibles, with all my defects of character, with all my stuff. I'm okay. I never was okay before this program. It has taught me that I'm okay, that I'm, I'm a good person, that I have friends, that I have a place to go and, I, and, and, and people to share with. And so it's just whatever I've needed along the way has been there for me. All I had to do was pray about it. I had a situation uh, this last week, uh, which I won't go into in detail, but I had a, a, um, a very difficult experience on New Year's Eve with some very close friends. And I felt very betrayed and uh, very discouraged and very disappointed. And um, I hadn't done anything wrong. And one of my friends called, and, and we, we settled it, and the other friend didn't call. And when I called her and asked her, to, could we talk about it, she didn't see anything wrong with it. And I said to her, well, I guess we have nothing else to discuss. And she said, I guess I'll call you sometime. And I had that, that, you know, that hard knot in your gut that you get when something's not right. And I had that for two days, and I woke up on Friday, and I thought, I can't stay with this anymore 
And that morning I prayed to send love and light to her. And that afternoon she called me. And it was okay. So that's what you do. You do what your, what your, what your prayer tells you to do. And I know my time is up. Thank you for letting me share. Bye-bye.